afternoon, the panel RNZ National. Nice to be with you this afternoon. And the race is officially on with both major parties launching their campaigns at the weekend. For National, a slick number at a Blue Event Centre in South Auckland and Labour at Aotea Centre. Central Auckland MPs and supporters were forced to walk through a Freedoms New Zealand protest to get in. Meanwhile, what are described as attack ads are starting to surface. The Council of Trade Unions taking out a front-page ad, actually front and inside, on the New Zealand Herald, uh, the most negative campaign in history. That's what National called it. With us is Professor uh, of Politics Richard Shaw from Massey University. Professor Shaw, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace, and um, g'day to Moata and Mark too. Yeah, good to have you here, Richard. What's what's your thoughts? Will this be an election campaign like no other? No, no, of course it won't be. Every one of them is like no other. We forget what happened three years before. Um, I mean, I, I can see why. Why we? Mm. I think there are some things that are going to be different about this campaign. Um, partly because it takes place. Uh, in the aftermath of all of the various things that happened post-COVID, including the consequences of the parliamentary occupation, so there was a sort of a radicalisation on the on the extreme right of the political spectrum, which I think we probably haven't seen before in quite this way. And we've seen both national candidates and Labour candidates, uh, the leaders and other and other members of their parties, um, having the freedoms people turn up unannounced uh, and try and make their voices heard. So that's that's new. I, I think also what might be new is the relative influence of parties other than National or Labour. Uh, those, what we used to call minor parties, probably shouldn't call them that anymore. They're going to mm. be more consequential. But in some ways, um, in some ways, no, this is... You know, this is not this is not going to be unusual. There was plenty of negative stuff around in 2020, particularly out there on the margins. 2014, dirty politics. You know, Kim dot com's moment of oh, truth. Oh, the moment of truth. Can you recall that the Auckland Town Hall? That was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? With the likes of Glenn Greenwald and such. Yeah, well, I completely forgot about it until your producer Mary reminded me of it. So you know, there's that, <laughs> and there's, there's all the way back to 2005 and the Iwi Kiwi. You know, that, so. All of our campaigning has these kinds of elements to it. There, there's some contextual stuff that might be a wee bit different, but I'm but I'm not sure that it's going to be a campaign unlike any other. Yes, gosh, those memories are really coming back now. The moment of truth uh, with Kim.com, uh, that he had the internet party. But anyway, Richard, tell me before we go to our p- uh, panel, what is the role of a campaign or campaign season? Haven't we had weeks of policy rollouts already? Yes, we have. Two Campaigns have really two roles, I think. Um, one of those is to do with the question of whether or not people to vote. Uh, and the second role is in influencing who they vote for. So on, on the first of those, one of the really important things that a campaign can do is either suppress or encourage additional turnout. Um, we know that many people have made up their mind who they might vote for, but we don't necessarily know that those people will get out and vote. So a campaign, particularly an intense campaign, can um, encourage people to think that this this election is going to be consequential. It matters that I get it out. It matters who I vote for. So it can drive turnout up. But it can have the reverse effect as well. If it's, if it's overwhelmingly negative, and, and we might want to talk about this later on, it can also suppress turnout. So there's that question about whether or not people actually get out to vote. And, and we, we should probably remember that um, overseas voting starts on 27th of September, I think, and advanced voting starts on the 2nd of October. And that really matters because last time in 2020, 
68% of us had already cast our votes by the time the actual election day itself took place. So there's that, there's that thing. But there's also the question of who people vote for. Um, many people have already made up their minds. There are plenty yeah. of people who are kind of sticky. But there is also a significant uh, number of people who are undecided. And, and this election will possibly hinge on who those people vote for, assuming they get out to vote. So the campaign will matter in that respect as well. Why don't we go around the panel and then come back to you, Richard Moata Tamairam. Yeah, I, maybe it's because I'm an information professional, but I don't really care about campaigning. I don't care if it was a slick delivery and if, who was in the audience. I want to know what their policies are, and I'd quite like somebody who's an expert to contextualise those and, give, and add some commentary. But I don't really care about any of the rest of the posturing and stuff like that. And something that you said, Richard, I've read this before, that um, the more negative uh, campaigns get in the lead up to an election, um, the more likely people are to kind of switch off and disengage from it, particularly earnest lefties like me. (laughs) And I do feel that a little bit. Yeah, and I think that is one of the risks of negative campaigning. Uh, quite apart from the consequences for the outcome of this particular election, negative campaigning damages uh, the trust that people have in the political system. Generally, it damages the trust we have in our in our democratic civilization, and it's really bad over the medium to long term. Because you're quite right, people just kind of switch off. And and also, and I haven't seen any New Zealand research on this, but there's a big US uh, survey which I was having a look at beforehand, which says. Uh, both both the people who are attacked by negative campaigns and the people who do the attacking, they both lose as a consequence of negative campaigning. So there's, mm-hmm. it's not even clear that that common sense assumption that we seem to make yeah. um, is necessarily true. And Mark, we're seeing that here. One thing I did want to bring up with uh, with the panel and, and you are uh, this, this new campaign, these so-named attack ads, you know, full package attack ad from the um, Council of Trade Unions, some are calling it... Uh, uh, negative advertising. I think, I don't know, I think there's a bit of a gener- general fatigue around the country. People are fatigued by everything. And it, it's almost beggar's belief that the two major parties only launched their campaigns last weekend. It feels like this has been going on for months and months. <laughs> mm, uh, I and I think there is an absolute feeling of like, oh my God, how much more of this can we actually endure? Um, and is that because, and that, Richard, I'm quite keen on your thoughts on this, is it because we are a small, tiny nation, and we're that much closer to things that are happening in the media, and we sort of we have a more direct relationship with things politically because we are so small. Is that a thing? Yeah. Mm. Yes, I think it is a thing, Mark. I, I agree with you on both points, both the, the fact of, of being a small community and therefore having closer contacts. You know, we're sort of one or two degrees away max from our local MP, or we feel that they're accessible even if they are a little lesser than they might have been. But I also agree with you um, when you comment on that sense that the, the damn thing seems to be going on forever. <laughs> and, and, in, and, in, and I think you're right. In a sense, it quite literally has been. We, you know, in, in my discipline, we talk about the permanent campaign. We used to talk about the campaign, and then your first year after the election, uh, you get stuff done, and then you consolidate, and then you head into campaign mode. But, but there was a, the professionalisation of politics in recent decades means that parties are essentially permanently campaigning and, and right. the advent of social media have just allowed them to do that at speed and at scale. So I think you're right. People are people are kind of generally knackered. I mean, they're knackered in the, in, in the advent of the global pandemic. 
but it, it has been, it has started out, it has started to feel like a particularly niggardly campaign. And, and my concern, quite apart from whether or not what the CTU did or the Taxpayers Union did can be formally classified as attack ads, is that people just switch off. Like both, both you, Mark and Mata, have both made those comments. Mm. Uh, and what we really don't want to see, I think after 2020 in particular, which was the highest turnout we've had since 1999, we really don't want to see turnout starting to, to, to fall away again because that, the signal Fires of disengagement with politics over the long run, those things lead to really bad places. That's interesting. I'd be interested to hear from our um, listeners if you're hearing, if, if both our panellists, Moata and Mark, are already over it at this stage and a bit turned off by the negativity. Let me ask you, what are you feeling? Text me, 2101. Uh, so, uh, final thoughts. Did you want to sort of make another comment, any other comment around these, um, these uh, full-page ads? Again, as, as others have said, they're not particularly new, are they? It's been, we've been here before on that, but uh, uh, we'll see more on this space perhaps, Richard? I think we probably will see more on the space, but it won't be uniform. It won't be from everybody, and it won't be all the time. So we need to be careful not to say they all do this all the time. But the, and the other thing that we need to remember, I think, is that um, most of the most of the empirical research that has been done on the uh, efficiency or the efficacy of campaigning says it's the face-to-face stuff, the door knocking and the getting out and about and the meeting of candidates and so on. That that embodied. Politics. That part of the campaign is the is the stuff that is likely to swing people's oh. views about whether or not they're going to get out to vote, and if so, who they're going to vote for. Mm. So it's small scale, and you might think, hell, you'd have to do an awful lot of those to shift the dial. But if it if, if it is a close forward election, it's not clear that that's going to be the case. But if it is the case, then that face to face stuff is going to be possibly more important than the negative digital campaign. Right. That is interesting. I've always wanted to know that. If you meet a, uh, a leader or an MP in a roundabout and you're quite impressed, you go, oh, yes, that's right. I've changed my mind. Mm. I think door yeah. knocking really works. Person, right? door, yeah. door knocking really works, and people okay. like to see the person they could be voting for. I think getting out and about yep. is crucial. Yep. Wasn't it Nikki yep. Kay who yep. said ten, knocked on 10,000 doors yep. and as a result? Yep. Yep. Very good. Yep. Professor Shaw, kia ora. Thank you again for your time. Uh, that's, Thank you, Oz. Uh, Pleasure. Yeah, professor uh, in politics uh, from Massey uh, University. It is 18 past four. Gosh, some wonderful uh, comments coming through about um, the famous people that you bumped into. David Hasselhoff was in New Zealand. Uh, Kat says, I danced through central Rome with the Harlem Globetrotters one night. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> then on to a disco with them. Fabulous men and wonderful dancers. And guess what? It was a night to remember. That's interesting, isn't it? Our famous uh, people that you bumped into on the street or whatever, 2101, uh, let me know. Fascinating. But to this, better dental health has been discussed for years, hasn't it? And a promise to extend free dental care to all those under 30. That's what Labour announced. What would it mean? Annual checkups, teeth cleaning, basic filling, extractions fully implemented in 2026 affecting around 800,000 Kiwis the cost 390 million dollars over the next four years free dental care already exists for under 18s now Max Harris is a co-convener of the Dental for All Coalition he's written about this for years kia ora Max kia ora Wallace thanks for having me on I'm guessing you support it 
I do, yes. Um, as you said, it's something that lots of people have fought for, but we know that New Zealand has some terrible dental health. We have the highest unmet dental need among 11 comparable countries, according to a 2020 study. We know that that poor health, you know, uh, goes downstream into, into kind of even worse uh, health problems. That um, This affects our productivity. This affects people's sense of shame. And so um, bringing dental into the public healthcare system where it's been excluded for so long um, is a really meaningful uh, way we can address uh, some of these problems and expand our public healthcare system. I'd like to know what's changed. Uh, you know, December, then Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern told Newsroom that universal free dental is a policy that everyone would love to have, but it's massively expensive, quote, unquote. Is this just last-minute policy fantasy, Max? I'm not sure. I mean, uh, one point is that the Labour policy that's been announced is uh, only universal up to the age of 30. The Greens policy goes a lot further. I think one thing that has changed that I heard at the New Zealand Dental Association Summit just recently is that COVID's really laid bare the inequality um, in our society generally, but maybe in particular the kind of inequalities of health. Um, And I think even among dentists, I think that's produced a impulse for change. Um, and I think that that's added to all of the evidence we've had over the years um, and, and meant that this is rightly, I think, becoming a more central political issue. OK, well, Mark North Thomas, you're over 30, clearly. So, how well, that's how not very clearly. dare you, Wallace? No, no, okay. uh, just, over, just over 30. <laughs> you're excluded. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that um, who doesn't want free dental care? Obviously, it's a great thing. But to my mind, I think we've got some other other fruit that needs to be picked off the tree of need. So for as long as we've got people still living in cars and we've got, you know, thousands of people still living in emergency houses, I think, and I, I don't, don't, don't misunderstand me, I think having free dental care is amazing because it's got some really good outcomes in other areas as well. So it's part of a, a root cause of many things, no pun intended. But I think there are other issues like getting people out of living in cars. We've got children, families living in cars. To me, that is a burning bridge and that needs to be priority number one. So how any political party, left, right or centre, isn't prioritising some of those things for New Zealanders who don't have somewhere safe, warm and dry to live. To me, that is mission critical. So nothing else matters. Max. Yeah, kia ora, Mark. I think um, one point I'd make there is that the issues are connected. So, uh, yeah, I also work with a coalition on uh, welfare policy called Fairer Future. And um, a big reason why people are in cars is that they have to take out massive amounts of debt. And one of the major reasons why people um, have to take out debt is because dental care is not within our public health care system. We've privatised it. And everyone knows we pay astronomical costs for dental care. So I actually think these issues are connected and making sure that people don't have to pay those enormous costs and go into enormous debt or worse, take out um, teeth with pliers, as some dentists in our group have seen, um, that, that I think can make a meaningful difference to poverty in the okay. country, even if I think more can be done. Okay, for- Mark, not quite buying it, Moata. Sorry, I'm just trying to gather myself from the mental image of somebody extracting their own tooth with a pair of pliers. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, the, there's so many things that, as you say, are interconnected. Um, and I, for a lot of years, didn't realise if you have gum disease, that's also a risk mm-hmm. factor for heart disease. So mm-hmm. it's not the case that your mouth just does this uh, entity on to itself that doesn't interact with the rest of your body. It genuinely is, you know, it has health 
um, flow-on effects for the rest of your body. So, you know, the idea that it should be treated separately and not part of the health system, um, quite aside from the economics, it just actually doesn't make logical sense to me. So probably not you either. (laughs) Okay. Now, Max, would it not be – I'm putting it out there – would it not be better – and cheaper to instead of spending three hundred and ninety million dollars over the next four years, wouldn't it be better to spend a one off sum, I don't know, maybe five or ten million dollars rolling out a dental hygiene campaign? You know, brush your teeth morning at night, floss daily. Uh, if you're a parent, make sure that you don't give your children fruit juice every single day. Surely that would have maybe not as much of an impact, but it that would be significant. What about that? I think that that would be useful, but I think um, education only goes so far. I mean, I think what we know is that 72% of New Zealanders, according to an ASMS poll, didn't get dental care over the last year because of cost. So it wasn't because they weren't aware of the benefits. It wasn't because of, you know, other any kind of cultural or educational reasons. It was because... They couldn't afford it. And so I think we really have to plug that hole in that that's the most urgent thing that we can do. And it will save money over time. So another ASMS report um, called Tooth Be Told um, showed that every dollar invested in public dental care would return $1.60 because of improved productivity, because of avoiding those downstream health consequences that Moata um, just mentioned. Okay. All right. Very good to have you on, Max Kiora. That's uh, Max uh, Harris there, who is uh, co-convener of the Dental Fraud Coalition. Uh, not going to lie, though, uh, Mark. I mean, it is pricey to go to the dentist for anybody. It is pricey. I mean, it's probably a few hundred dollars a year just for a checkup, as long as your teeth are okay. Um, but to your point, I think if there was some grassroots uh, education programs in place, so people aren't giving their children soft drinks to drink, by default every day or whatever regularly and, and kids are having their teeth brushed twice a day after meals. I mean, that goes a long way to help. That's that's kind of how the foundation that, you know, I, I came from when I was a kid growing up with a dental nurse in the schools and that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, 26 past for the panel. We have Moata Tomaida and Mark Knopf-Thomas with us. Oh, goodness, listen to this. Um, Sigourney Weaver wow. walked into my market stall underground market Wellington, I had no idea who she was. She bought a pair of pants from me. The other stallholders were gathering around taking photos of her. Uh, ha, wow. Uh, American actor, the star of the great shows Night Rider and Baywatch, David Hasselhoff. Are you laughing? Not laughing. I'm no. A big Hoff fan. Good. Has been spotted in New Zealand. A friend of mine bumped into him outside the Sky Tower, or who he thought was David Hasselhoff. He said hello. And it got me thinking, what famous character have you bumped into or said hello to? What reaction did you get? Text me, 2101. With us this afternoon, first up, is Niels. Kia ora, Niels. Hey. Hey, Hi, how are you? <laughs> now, what about you? Tell us your story. Well, it was a long time ago, early 80s. I was a cadet reporter on the Southland Times, and I got to interview Loretta Swit, who was played Hot Lip Tullaham on the programme MASH. You're kidding me. <laughs> and I went to a hotel room for the interview, and she insisted that we do the interview in the 
in the spa, <laughs> in the spa pool, <laughs> okay. in the hotel, which uh-huh. we did. <laughs> Hang on, so you interviewed Hot Lips Houlihan in her spa pool in Invercargill? That's right. Okay. Be about 83, I think. Of course. Long time ago. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Well, more after... Sparkles and a vocal in a motel That's the most impressive thing. Forget the fame! I think it was called the Calvin, I think, for memory. Moata? Now, I'm going to assume you didn't turn up to this interview with the pair of togs. Uh, no, no. That so, were, so you were just in your underwear, or <laughs> no? They were provided. Oh. <laughs> wow! I don't Very know how, how that happened, but yeah. What was she like? She's so famous. Oh, she was very nice. It was it was all very proper, but <laughs> it was just funny, and I've always remembered it. And um, some of my friends were very jealous. <laughs> well, that's that's a memory, isn't it? Because we forget, well, we don't, uh, how uh, such a genre-bending show Mash was. I mean, at at its height, that you couldn't get any more famous than you know. <laughs> I can't remember what she was doing in Invercargill, but she did a tour of New Zealand at the time. She was actually she. Was, I remember seeing her in Dunedin at a parade, and yeah. she was in a jeep and being paraded down. I think George Street on doing. I think maybe a Christmas. Parade or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Very good yeah, memory. Yeah, it'd be about the same time, I guess, the same well, visit. Well, there's a there's a memory to hold on to, Niels. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Enjoy your show. Oh, th- okay. Thank you, thank you, Niels. Yeah, uh, talking about uh, <laughs> uh, a, a famous person that you uh, bumped into with us is Maureen. Welcome, Maureen. Hello. How about you? What's your tale? I met Tom Jones in the Octagon and here in Dunedin in 2010 uh-huh. <laughs> for one of his concerts. I was I was told by a work colleague that Tom Jones was sitting in the Octagon. I thought, oh, I had to go and check on that. And sure enough, there was Tom Jones in the Octagon. He was sitting with some guys, I assume, were his band. And I told myself, if you don't go and talk to him, you'll be cross with yourself. So I did. I just went and said hi. And he said, hello, darling. <laughs> And he's probably used to people like me going, women like me anyway, going to say hello. And um, I think I just said I was looking forward to his concert. I think it was that evening. He said, where is it? And I pointed up to the town hall in the Octagon. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, how will I get there? I said, well, I'm sure someone will take you. (laughs) And uh, that was about it, really, because I was aware that he was on a downtime, and I thought I'll just um, say hello. And I'm glad I did. He was very, very pleasant. Oh, my goodness. What what, what was he doing? Just sitting in the sunshine, feeding the birds? Yes, it was, uh, it was a summer evening. I think it was February 2010. He was sitting outside the bar. It was the crack bar in the octagon. You all may know it. And um, there he was. Yep. Just Tom, just as you yep. do, Mark, Tom Jones. Maureen. Tom Jones. <laughs> that is such an amazing story. Thanks for t- uh, telling New Zealand. Yeah. What about you, Moata? Um, someone says, I once walked past Jim Mora in Dominion Road. <laughs> I smiled and waved, and Jim smiled and waved back. I'll tell him that next time I see him, which will be Thursday. What about you, Moata? Uh, I've got a couple. Um, well, this is the least interesting. Um, I was about three people behind Quentin Tarantino in a oh. queue for airport security at LAX once. I'd been in Los Angeles for 30 minutes and I'd already seen a famous person. I was like, yeah. And that was the only <laughs> famous person I saw for several days. Um, Sean Bean once bought me a beer. Um, because I was working in a pub in London and he, he 
came in and I was serving him and so and it was quite usual to say and and one for yourself so um, that's another one and I met Wendy Richard uh, who some of your listeners may know as Pauling Fowler from East Enders uh, in a pub again in London I wasn't working that time um, it was a very tiny pub that you could only fit about twenty people in so if you were in that pub and there was somebody else there you were going to end up having a chat with them and the thing about her she was she was really nice but she was smoking this is back when you could smoke in pubs she was smoking a cigarette and she was hold, it was in one of those cigarette holders like yeah. Audrey Hepburn from Breakfast at Tiffany's <laughs> yes. and I couldn't help thinking that's the most unpauline fowler thing I could have possibly imagined you'd do but you know you know that lovey for you these are Actors. so amazing story Moata. so many are coming through uh, unbelievable a brief one mark uh, very very quickly I had the pleasure of having dinner with Sri McCallum once I had to host him for a meal in, in, in Auckland which is amazing he was fabulous and the other most recent one would probably be I spent an afternoon with Jimmy Chu uh, shopping around Newmarket no it was amazing you're kidding me I'm a awesome. fan of his I'm a fan of his work <laughs> <laughs> indeed uh, you're on the panel uh, NZ National Moata, Tom Ida and Mark, not Tom, it is time for headlines.